Hello, friends. This is part three, the final installment on the life of Joe Carstairs, remembered as the fastest woman on water. If you haven't heard parts one and two yet, listening to those first will give you the best experience coming into this one. In case you need a quick refresher on Joe, or in case you're someone who skips right to the end of a series, which must be like reading the last chapter of a book first, here's a quick recap of what we've discussed so far. In the first couple episodes, we discussed Joe's intense childhood, her service with the Red Cross in World War I, her inheritance of massive wealth her grandfather garnered through the monopoly of the Standard Oil Company. We went over her fight to keep that inheritance after two of her former stepfathers tried suing her for it after her mother's death. We talked about the struggles she faced as an openly gay woman in the early 20th century, her impressive powerboat racing history, the speed record she broke, her relationship with Ruth Baldwin, the love of her life. We touched on her attachment to the doll she named Lord Todd Wadley, which added another layer onto her reputation as an eccentric, and how the press began to turn on her once the Roaring Twenties began to give way to the more conservative Thirties. We left off last time just as Joe had purchased Whale Key, an island in the Bahamas, and it's here her story will pick back up again. So, with that quick recap achieved, let's get right into it and finish the series on the life of Joe Carstairs. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In 1934, when Joe purchased Whale Key in what is now the independent country and archipelago of the Bahamas, it was still a British colony in what was then known as the British West Indies. The Bahamas would eventually gain independence on July 10, 1973. According to Britannica, Whale Key is only one of over 700 islands and keys that make up the Bahamas. These islands sit on the gateway to the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean Sea, and the entire Central American region, and this strategic location has given the Bahamas a history jam-packed with other countries and pirates who wanted to take advantage of that position. Here's a couple hundred years of history in two minutes. This is where Christopher Columbus first landed in the Americas and there were already tens of thousands of people living and thriving on these islands when he arrived. Within a 25-year span, they would fall victim to both disease and slavery. 40,000 native and now enslaved Arawaks were transported to Hispaniola alone, where many died working in mines. In the 1600s, British colonists arrived, they brought a plantation economy that relied on slave labor. By the 1700s, the British crown was in control, though settlers would find themselves at the mercy of both French and Spanish ships at times, as well as pirates. The islands and keys made for excellent hiding places, and pirates like Anne Bonny, Blackbeard, Mary Reed, and Calico Jack are all believed to have made their way to the Bahamas. In the 1860s, the islands benefited economically from the American Civil War. 
The British textile industry relied on southern cotton, and when the Union blockaded British ships from reaching southern ports, blockade runners met British ships in the Bahamas and traded cotton for goods. In 1919, the U.S. passed a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, import, transport, and sale of alcohol. The people of the Bahamas used this as an opportunity to expand their port in Nassau to increase the flow of alcohol, which brought them enormous revenues. However, when Prohibition ended in 1933, which also coincided with the collapse of the integral sponge industry due to fungal diseases, the economy of the Bahamas, then the British West Indies, was devastated. Enter Joe Carstairs. When Joe arrived, the British West Indies had a population of around 60,000 people, spread out over its 700 islands. 50,000 of them were black, with the majority of the colonial white population living in the capital of Nassau, New Providence. That's according to Kate Summerscale, whose biography on Joe was my most used source for this series. Link to that and all other sources in the show notes. Joe arrived in the Bahamas amidst economic devastation. To make matters worse, the islands had just been hit by a series of hard storms and hurricanes, which had obliterated crops. Whale Key was around a thousand acres, nine miles long, four miles wide, and about 30 miles from Nassau. Its only inhabitants were one couple who tended the lighthouse. It was a beautiful place. It had hills, white sand beaches circling the coast, and the surrounding coral reefs were packed with ocean life just beneath the water. Grass and jungle made the island difficult to traverse, and Joe found eager locals from surrounding islands looking for work, who she hired to clear paths, lay a road across the island, and build a house. The heat and the bugs almost made Joe give up island life within the first few weeks of working. But she was stubborn, fleeing bad press and possible tax evasion charges, so quitting wasn't in the cards. By the way, she would eventually pay off those taxes she owed from the 1920s, but it would take her all the way until 1945 to do so. The islanders weren't quite sure what to make of Jill, but she offered work and worked hard herself. Once, when she and the road workers were eating lunch, she saw a snake approaching. She took the knife from her belt, threw it at the creature, and cut its head clean off. After that, everyone started calling her boss. Joe opened up a store on the island, stocking it with lard, rice, sugar, tea, coffee, and other essentials. She had a large hole dug, had it continuously filled with ice brought from the mainland, and used that for the refrigeration of supplies. It was 1936 before her house was finished. It was a Spanish villa with white walls, red tiles, iron railings, and had a lawn landscaped with palm trees and other local flora. It consisted of five bedrooms and five bathrooms, as well as a living room, laundry, kitchen, cold room for meats, and a dining room. Copper ship's lanterns gave light in the evening, a fireplace offered heat on cold nights, and fans were installed to ease the anguish of brutally hot days. A 75,000-gallon cistern under the house assured there would be plenty of fresh water. Everything that could have a wall around it had a wall around it. 
Joe wanted to keep the world out. She felt it had rejected her. Now on Whale Key, she was rejecting the world and living on her own terms. The walls she constructed were as metaphorical as they were physical. While Joe enjoyed the luxury of her house, those who worked for her enjoyed little. At the time, hundreds of black workers were employed by Joe. 300 alone worked on the construction of her house. And every one of them were affected by the economic hardships devastating the British West Indies at the time. The majority of her workers lived either in the boats they had used to reach the island or in shacks they had constructed next to her house. Joe, with all her millions, only paid the men who worked for her $4 a week and the women $3 a week. And as much as she would later champion and extol the work she brought to the islands and even speak out in support for the island's black population, Joe was still an imperialist and now a colonist. It's true she brought a much-needed economic boost to the island. However, there was a very real and very damaging racial and socioeconomic divide between herself and the people who worked for her. Personally, Joe seemed to be aware and indignant of the hardships she had contended with as an open lesbian in an extremely unaccepting society. She described herself as an exile when she left for Whale Key. It's also obvious she had overcome personal difficulties and trauma in regards to the relationships she'd had with her family. However, Joe seemed much less aware or empathetic of the hardships others who were financially less fortunate than herself faced, and of the racial struggles that had ravaged these islands for centuries. While Joe's worldview did shift over her years at Whale Key, and we'll get into that in a bit, initially, and to some extent permanently, Joe always had an imperialistic presence at Whale Key. For example, when her friends came to visit, all the black workers had to stay on their own beach. She was the ultimate authority on the island, and once when someone had stolen all the workers' weekly wages from the safe, she told everyone on the island they wouldn't get any food until it was returned, saying, quote, People will starve, that's all. Once, she even had a man whipped when he was convicted of adultery. And when he complained to the British government, they told him that whoever owned an island in the Dominion was judge and jury over the people. Well, Key was about as close to owning her own country as Joe could get. She even said herself, quote, I had a country going. I ran a country. Before I get a bunch of emails saying we shouldn't judge historic figures with a modern lens, I get it. And I'm not here saying Joe was a bad person. I don't think she was. This is just something I felt needed to be said in the context of the larger history surrounding these islands, and therefore, the story. Joe continued to buy land after arriving in Whale Key. She purchased more islands, including Bird Key, Cat Key, Devil's Key, and half of Hoffman's Key, and hired workers to grow potatoes, celery, strawberries, rice, peanuts, and other crops. On Whale Key, she had the lighthouse rebuilt, as well as, eventually, a school, a radio station, church, a small medical facility, and a granary. She raised pigs and chickens, and even canned fish for a time. Once the infrastructure on the island was in place, around 200 workers lived permanently on Whale Key with Joe, and that number would swell over the next few years. She had created a kingdom one that was as self-sufficient as possible. She wanted everything she needed to be accessible on the island. Joe loved the isolation of Whale Key. 
She tried getting Ruth Baldwin to come live with her, but isolation wasn't a draw for Ruth the way it was for Joe. If you remember from the last episode, Ruth was the most important relationship of Joe's life. The two had a house together in London, and Joe bought Ruth another house near Miami to make it easier for her to come visit. Though the two had already been together for at least 10 years by this point, neither of them were completely monogamous. Sometimes Joe would find different girlfriends who would come to the island until they grew bored of it, and left for a more exciting life back on the mainland. Joe often hosted friends of hers from both the U.S. and England, sometimes 20 at a time. Joe didn't do drugs, and she didn't drink much, but her parties had a reputation for being riotous. She played host well, offering poker games, boxing matches, fishing competitions, even bird hunting excursions and tours of the neighboring islands. Between friends, Joe had the company of her doll, Lord Wadley. If you remember from the last episode, Lord Wadley was the doll Ruth had given to Joe as a gift when she'd started racing boats. Joe took him everywhere, dressed him in tailored suits, included him in self-portraits, and increasingly imbued him in her mind with human qualities as the years passed. Joe set up a small museum, filling it with things she found interesting. Lots of weapons like swords, spears, and cutlasses, a few fish she had caught, her impressive collection of powerboat trophies, a life-size statue of Lord Wadley, which had to have been at least a little bit creepy, models of ships, World War I shell casings, and even a stuffed dog. Ruth came to the island periodically until she grew tired of island life, and Joe would go visit her in Florida or back at their first house in London until she grew tired of cities. This seemed to work for them, until one day in 1937. Joe was in Whale Key when Ruth was in London. Ruth had gone to a party where friends had gathered to listen to the broadcast of a boxing match, and there, suddenly, she collapsed. Friends carried her back home, and shortly afterwards, that's where she died. Ruth was 32 years old when she died. It was probably a drug overdose, which meant Joe had lost another person in her life to drugs. She grabbed her doll, Lord Wadley, and immediately left for England when she heard of Ruth's death. It took her six days to get there on a French liner called the Normandy. Joe didn't do drugs, and she didn't like to drink much, but for those six days, she got and stayed drunk. Joe said it was the first time she'd ever cried. Ruth was embalmed and Joe filled the room with flowers before she was eventually cremated. Joe took Ruth's ashes back to Whale Key, and every year there was a memorial service held in her honor at the Anglican church Joe had built on the island. Joe put a picture of Ruth over her bed and left it there. In the tapes Summerscale discovered in which Joe told her own life story, she mentioned seeing Ruth's photograph watching over her in her 70s as she reached for her crutches. She even started writing poetry after Ruth's death and seemed to become more introspective. Now she became even more attached to the doll Lord Todd Wadley. It was rare for her to let anyone else touch him, and she would take him everywhere she went, refusing to be parted from him even for one night. 
a lifetime of building walls, physically and metaphorically, coupled with the most difficult death she would ever experience, caused Joe to slip even deeper into emotional isolation. Joe did find ways to distract herself from her grief, and continued to put energy and focus into building Whale Key. By 1940, her store on the island was the biggest in the Bahamas. Now you could buy clothes, a Coke, tobacco, and even chocolate from Joe's store. She would go to the capital of Nassau, buy everything at wholesale, and then sell it at the store at cost. By this time, Joe was starting to try and find ways to improve the living conditions of those who lived on Whale Key and in the Bahamas. She donated so much money to the Bahamas General Hospital, they were able to build the Carstairs Ward for children. She set up a day school on the island for children and a night school for adults, because at the time, 90% of the adults on Whale Key were illiterate. After this, the number of people living on Whale Key grew from around 200 to 500. People were so eager to get to Whale Key, they would risk getting there in poor conditions. Once, when a group of 12 people left the island of Andros for Joe's Island, nine of them drowned before getting there. It wasn't until 1941 that Whale Key made a profit. This happened when Joe sold vegetables to a cannery that made tinned food for soldiers. In 1940, the Duke of Windsor was made governor of the Bahamas, and he and his wife, Wallace Simpson, came to visit Joe in 1941. This was five years after he'd abdicated the British throne in order to marry Wallace. When Wallace Simpson saw the doll, Lord Todd Wadley, she said, quote, My God, he's just like my husband. Joe said she found the Duke to be boring. By this time, World War II was well underway. Joe had volunteered in France with the American Red Cross in World War I and was eager to help in World War II as well. Joe offered her ship, the Sonia II, to Britain. The Sonia II was a large schooner, and though the British Navy had issued a request for boats to be handed over as minesweepers, they rejected Joe's offer, saying her boat was unsuitable. She then offered it to the Americans after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but they too refused it. According to Summerscale, Joe presented the Duke of Windsor with a plan to establish both fighting and farming task forces in the Bahamas, one that had the potential to make the colony completely self-sufficient during the war. He completely ignored it. Still wanting to do something, Joe contacted her half-brother Francis, who was helping to build fighter planes for the RAF, as well as ferrying planes between airfields. She asked him how she could go about enlisting for the fight. He dismissed her as well, saying simply, Wrong age, wrong sex. Rejected from the war effort, Joe continued to put her energy into trying to improve life in the Bahamas. Joe had managed to bring some economic success to Whale Key, and this convinced her that she could revolutionize social and economic aspects of the Bahamas as a whole. Joe established what she called the League of Colored Youth, which today would be an offensive title. This is because, according to the charity Show Racism the Red Card, the word colored was used in the U.S. in the era of segregation to describe anyone who wasn't white, which could imply that to be white is the only normal, or default. 
The Bahamas at the time were not agriculturally successful. Joe's plan was to organize the working class, the overwhelming majority of which were black, to transport and distribute fertilizer and create sustainable farms. Anyone in Joe's league could apply to farm on the neighboring island of Bird Key, or on an island of their own choosing. For the first year, Joe would supply them with free food, clothing, tools, fertilizer, and anything else they needed in order to get a sustainable farm going, and hopefully bring in a profit. Joe then suggested a store be opened so the farmers could sell their fruit and vegetables in the capital of Nassau. This idea was not well received by the white merchants of Nassau, who held most of the economic power in the Bahamas. They were known as the Bay Street Boys, and not only did they control the economy, they held most of the seats in the House of Assembly. They owned the businesses on Main Street and made their money through imports, not through promoting native agriculture. They said Joe would incite racial hatred if she went through with her plan and demanded she shut down the League. Joe replied saying the plan had nothing to do with inciting racial hatred. It was just a way for the black population to advance economically and socially. The Bay Street Boys were appeased for a time, but that ended when Joe later accused the House of Assembly of choosing profit over people. She wrote to the New York Telegram and said, among other things, quote, The health and economic status of their people means absolutely nothing to the House of Assembly crowd. The merchants of Bay Street would rather import alligator pearls and sell them at 75 cents apiece than buy native-grown ones which could sell for a few cents each. Why? Because there is more profit in big prices." Unquote. This criticism was not well received. After this, the House of Assembly discussed deporting Joe. In the end, her league dissipated to nothing, and most of its members either moved to the U.S. to fill factory jobs when World War II broke out, or they left to work on a couple of new airfields being constructed on New Providence because it paid better. With the League dismantled, Joe decided to sell Bird Key. The buyer was none other than her half-brother Francis. She had bought the island, which was just a couple miles from Whale Key, for $8,000 before the war. She sold it to her brother for $150,000, which was a huge profit. I wonder if that helped take the sting out of the wrong age, wrong sex comment. During all of these events, Joe continued to find a new girlfriend every so often, though none of her relationships lasted very long. Most of them ended up leaving her for other women or a life away from the island. Although the romance would fizzle, Joe would retain some friendships with former lovers, even going so far as to provide annual incomes to them and their extended families well into the 1980s. She also did this for Ruth's sister and a number of former employees who had worked for her on Whale Key and their families. All of Joe's friends spoke of her generosity. After her former mechanic Joe Harris died, a man she had raced with, she continued to support his family for years with an annual income, long after his death. She also provided a lifelong income for at least one of the women she had volunteered with in World War I, who she'd met when she was only 16. The years ticked on, and the social landscape in the Bahamas began to change. The overwhelmingly black population was tired of colonialism, and Joe was increasingly being considered a colonist. 
Author Kate Summerscale summarizes the progression of Joe's decades well when she writes, quote, The movements of her life closely followed shifts in public attitudes. She threw herself into the limelight in the naughty 20s, went into exile in the reproving 30s, came out again during the Second World War, when manly qualities in women were briefly acceptable, returned to exile in its aftermath, and when she finally rejoined the wider world in the 60s, it was in part because times had again changed, and her brand of colonialism had had its day." Unquote. Joe gradually began to spend less and less time on Whale Key, and more time in Florida. She would sail to Miami on an old Navy supply vessel called St. Pete, which she had converted into a houseboat. She would anchor in the Miami River, her boat a kind of private island of its own, where she could still watch the world without having to be too much a part of it. In 1975, Joe was 75 years old. Maintaining a place on Whale Key grew more difficult each year. She kept it for as long as she could, but finally decided to sell the island. She sold it for just under a million dollars in 1975, which is just under five and a half million today. She had bought it in 1934 for $40,000. She said that when she sold Whale Key, she cried for the second time in her life. She was so heartbroken after leaving Whale Key, she said, quote, I could have gone out and shot myself. She let her favorite racing boat, the Estelle 4, sink to the bottom of a river on Whale Key. If you remember, she broke two speed records in that boat, had herself been its chief engineer, and when it was built, it was applauded as the finest hydroplane ever assembled. Its sinking was symbolic, and perhaps a way for Joe to leave a piece of her heart on the island. She said, I left her there to die. Whenever she would see beaches or islands reminiscent of Whale Key on television, she would have to turn off the TV. Still, she had Lord Wadley, and still, in her 70s, he went wherever she did. By now, he had his own wristwatch that worked, his own luggage, wallet, Bible, cigar case, golf clubs, revolver, dog, and even his own dolls. He was still always dressed in tailored suits and uniforms. Joe said, if everybody had a Wadley, there'd be less sadness in the world. This doll, which Joe ended up carrying around for over 60 years, was the only thing she trusted and the only thing she seemed to allow herself to be emotionally vulnerable with. Her money had made her an exception. She'd had the means to physically escape the persecutions that other LGBTQIA people who had been alive during her time could not escape. But emotionally and socially, she was still in part an isolated outcast. Joe had been a millionaire from birth to death, but it seemed that, in some ways, all she had left at the end was that doll and a picture of Ruth. For the rest of her life, Jo lived mainly in Florida and spent her summers in Long Island, New York. In 1978, Hugh Harrison, a friend of hers, moved in with Jo. As a gay man, Hugh was able to understand Jo more than most, and he would help care for her for the remainder of her days. Jo's last home was in Naples, Florida. Jo had the house lit with copper ship's lanterns, just like her house on Whale Key had been. As old age continued its incessant march and her body began to break down, 
Joe would refuse to take drugs to ease her pain. She had lost too many people to drugs to trust them now. She even refused to take Prozac when a doctor noticed her moods were becoming increasingly depressed. No longer able to go on adventures herself, Joe would watch travel documentaries and action movies. She loved the movie Jaws, especially. She also loved watching George Foreman box. There's my George, she'd say, whenever she saw him on TV. She'd watch movies that starred some of her old girlfriends, actresses she'd had affairs with. She donated her racing trophies to the National Motorboat Museum at Pitsy in Essex. According to Summerscale, the museum discovered the trophies were solid silver copies of the originals, as those had been stolen from her home in London in the 1930s. Joe changed her will often, about twice a year, allocating her $33 million fortune and her belongings to friends, old girlfriends, and their families. That $33 million would be worth well over $66.5 million now. She discouraged visitors when she became ill in her 90s. She didn't want people seeing her sick. She wouldn't leave her bedroom without being properly dressed and wouldn't even go to the bathroom without putting on lipstick. Joe outlived both her half-siblings who passed away in the 1980s. She would tell everyone that she was going to live to be 94 years old. And she nearly did. Joe fell into a coma on December 18, 1993, just a few weeks shy of her 94th birthday. When the clock would strike 9.40, the nurse would whisper to her that it was 9.40, hoping that Joe would hear this and somehow believe she had made it to the age of 94. But just before the finish line, Joe finally slipped away from the world for the last time. There would be no more walls to have to hide behind, no more islands for exile, just one final race into the unknown. I think, for the fearless Joe Carstairs, death wouldn't have loomed like an unwanted burden, but would have seemed like one final adventure. She was cremated, along with her doll, Lord Wadley. Their ashes were taken to Sag Harbor, New York, where they were placed in a grave with Ruth's. When she and Ruth were living together in London, the plaque by their house listed Joe's given name, Barbara, and the name of her doll, Lord Todd Wadley. This gave the impression that Joe was living with a man, rather than Ruth, allowing them to hide in plain sight. Now, on their shared tombstone, their names are finally listed together where they lay, side by side, to this day. Joe's story was fading from history, if it hadn't been for a journalist, Kate Summerscale, who found her obituary interesting, there wouldn't be much on Joe Carstairs. Joe was complicated and eccentric. She had her faults. We all do. She also had a generous heart and the daring to be herself, even when the world was telling her not to be. That alone makes her story an important one. I try to learn something with each one of these stories, not just facts, names and dates and deeds, but something that goes a bit deeper. From Joe, I learned that while having the courage to be yourself can be lonely and hard and painful sometimes, you should do it anyway.
Thank you so much for listening and joining me as we explored the life of Joe Carstairs. Now that this series is officially over, I'll be going back to the tri-weekly schedule. These episodes take a long time to write, research, record, and edit, which, on top of a full-time day job, can be a lot. 100% worth it, though. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for ya. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music is licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.